Episode 12, Proof of Work. The impact of Bitcoin's proof of work mechanism and its impact on humanity will be one of the more extraordinary events in the rise of the new monetary order. In short, value in work, not a stake of society, is what will become revolutionary in life. Humanity has been run on proof of stake and a proof of authority mechanism for millennia. What does this mean? Well, everything is rooted through your stake in society or your authority in society, not the relative value of your worth. It is farmers who produce the work, not the king, but society is rooted in the exact opposite balance of this. It is not that farmers produce only the important things in society, as it's merely supply and demand, and most of the time there is enough food to go around in society. But usually there are only a few great artists, scientists or soldiers in any society at one time. Money, which controls this society, has been based, however, on a proof-of-stake mechanism. The work you put into society is often limited by the upper barriers of your encounters with these stakeholders in society, not where the work is truly being produced, from a free market perspective. This manifests itself in many ways, but class or caste structures are generally rooted in these incentive structures of society. In practicality, what does this mean for the ordinary person? Well, Europe had the divine right of kings for centuries in the medieval period, which is about as proof of authority society gets. The monarch was a god-king whose stake in society was so large that nothing could be done without their say-so. Political power, artistic patronage and access to much of society was therefore connected to your relationship to the stakeholders of this society, all of which rooted around these god-kings of medieval Europe. The relationship to political patronage and access to society based around it was not just limited to politics, but more crucially to money and commerce. As the divine right of kings diminished around the turn of the early modern period and modern banking and commerce took over, society became more and more reminiscent of a proof-of-stake society, not just authority. The stakeholders in this sense were the owners of the commercial system, those who owned capital in the capitalist societies of the industrialised world. They controlled everything. The most obvious example might be something like the East India Company a private corporation with huge landholdings over much of Asia. It provided a proof-of-stake society in India in which one could work and work in India and gain a huge level of wealth and power, yet the power itself was limited by the stake you held in the true master of the realm, which was the East India Company, located in London. We could extend this metaphor to all capitalist societies in which the true stakeholders of society were those who owned the capital of the nation and therefore controlled a stake in society, a fact Marx and Engels took huge effort to describe. Indeed, one of the results of this during the early modern period were certain relative freedoms for non-natives of Europe who could live outside this power structure. The Jewish community in early modern Europe operated largely without restrictions from stakeholders on their trading and commerce. The permittance of usury for Jews only resulted in a small pocket of society 
able to function relatively freely with the issuance of debts and banking services. This manifested in an ability to charge interest on loans to European kings and wealthy individuals, and even the Pope, which would not have been available to native Europeans. Today, many elements of modern society still has proof-of-stake monetary functions. The most obvious example I can think of this in the modern economy is the need for licenses in order to trade in specific areas. Some may think this is a good idea. A license to practice medicine may be thought to be a good thing. But in a proof-of-work society, you would simply find the doctor with the reputation for being the best in curing his patients. Either locally or through word of mouth, you do not need to rely on a doctor with the best stake in the social hierarchy for your treatment. The situation becomes clearer the more you look into it. Licenses are required, for example, to open a pub or bar in Britain. It makes you apply to be a stakeholder and bear responsibility to the government for your actions, not to the people you serve. It makes no sense, as alcohol is so easy to access anyway. But this mechanism allows the government to control who sells alcohol publicly and then cut them off if they do anything deemed too transgressive. The rise of free parties in the 1990s were an inevitable consequence of government rules against drugs or what they deemed good taste. Examples of needing a license to trade in modern society is legion, but I think this has been seen as part of the old economy in which the government acts as a totalitarian omnipotent overlord to society. The simple fact Bitcoin runs on a proof-of-work mechanism means there will be a change to the structural makeup of society, as money makes the world go round. Such is the incentive structure of money to the way that modern society functions, and that money is such a binding facet of life that we can never really live without it. It dominates everything we do go out with friends, and at some point the topic of who owes what to whom and who is going to pay for drinks or whatever will come up. How many families have fallen out? How many relationships broken down because of money? Far, far too many. Therefore, the incentive structure of money does change the makeup of society from the root upwards. Of course, nobody ever really thought of our monetary order as proof of stake before Bitcoin. Yet, Introduced by Adam Back, the cryptographic function of proof-of-work will have a far more profound impact on the way society functions and its incentives than many could ever have predicted, back when Adam Back first proposed a solution for a way to limit spam email. The invention of proof-of-work computing and its adoption by Satoshi will result in a shift in how society is made up at its core. It is as important as the hard supply limit of 21 million coins. The earliest money, what you might call agricultural money, like wheat, barley or beer, is to some extent proof of work money. You have to work the land to collect the harvest or brew the beer in order to make the money. But as society shifted and got larger and the best fields and lands were taken up, there became a stake required in society as you needed to own this land, and then hire the labour to tend the crops. Though agricultural money is partly proof of work, it has strong elements of showing your proof of stake in society. After agricultural money, we get commodity money, silk, iron, copper, bronze, silver and gold. 
Again, this is largely a mix of proof of stake with some proof of work. In some places in history, during gold rushes for example, gold could be seen as proof of work money. You would have to stand all day sieving through the reeds and streams looking for the tiniest speck of gold. But this is hardly the basis of a proof of work society. Wheat is partly too abundant to be good proof of work money and gold is too scarce to be proof of work money. Money was even more transitory during the 20th century when any element of proof of work money, gold, was abolished and fiat money became dominant. Fiat money is pure proof of stake money. It is reliant on how close you are to the production of money itself, namely central and commercial banks. Without any possibility of independent money production, money became ever more centralised and dominated by those with a stake in society to produce the money itself. This is the financialization of the economy we talked about in the mini audiobook to start the podcast. This changes the incentive structure of society, as society now begins to revolve around the focus of money itself. This isn't difficult to understand. In times of political tyranny, life revolves around the tyrant. His likes and dislikes are reflected on society as a whole. The same for money. Central bankers with control of the money supply can artificially change the structure of society by changing how money is used in society. At the very basic level, this is down to inflation and interest rates, but it can devolve and change everything in all forms of human society. The 1950s and 1960s were an artificially prosperous time in England, largely down to the fixed exchange rate between the US dollar and the Great British Pound something of an American sop to thank Britain for fighting the Second World War and bankrupting itself in the process. Yet, even with this, there was never any interest in allowing the country to redevelop its industry and allow for long-term planning. The British state was happy allowing the country to develop something of a twilight era in its golden age. Then, in the 1970s, as the post-war economic consensus was buckling under the rise of the developing world and power shifting away from the West in several key areas, everything had to change. The Keynesian economic order was breaking with full employment but stagnant growth. What was the solution? It was the banks in the 1970s who pushed the women to start careers, to increase the number of jobs in the economy and therefore their basis for GDP growth. What started as a simple Keynesian trick, more employment, became a revolutionary change in society and its makeup. The nuclear family all but died. The lack of homemakers and housewives changed the type of children they were bringing up and has changed Western society to a huge extent. The same can be said for the consumer debt boom in the late 1980s, which was again a ploy by central bankers to manipulate the economy and artificially increase the money supply and access to credit. The rise in consumer debt has had a catastrophic impact on the lives of many, as their lives are now tied to their ability to use and access debt, not money. Anyway, the first real concept of proof of work money I can find was the Henry Ford and Thomas Edison proposal for an electric dollar based at the Muscle Shoals Hydro Dam. The proposal was featured on the episode of pre-Bitcoin internet currencies. The plan was not internet-based, of course, 
but based purely on using electricity output to back the dollar instead of gold. This is the first real concept of true proof-of-work money. The Ford plan was to tie the currency to work produced. As we've talked about, the plan was loose and without a fixed concept of what produced to dollars outputted. The plan was perhaps too far ahead of its time. As Ford noted, bankers hate change. Yet the concept remained. The linking of electricity to money did not die, and all it required to improve it was the addition of computer hash functions to link money and electricity together. Despite all of Ford's prognostications about the futility of a gold-based currency, the centrality of the state's money meant that no real experimentations could take place. Austrian economists knew that no state would be willing to forego their own monopoly on the money supply. So it was left to the private sector having to find a way to innovate new types of currencies without the need for state permission. The computer is of course one of humanity's greatest inventions. It allows binary digits to stimulate almost anything, including, as Bitcoin would prove, money itself. These computer simulations allow for the use of electricity through CPU usage to produce hash functions, which can simulate pure proof-of-work. What Adam Back's hash cash represents is one of the most important pieces of computer science ever created. So what is proof-of-work in computer science terms? Well, it is a form of cryptographic proof that allows one party to prove to another that a certain amount of effort, in our case CPU calculations, has been used in order to fulfil certain requisites. This proof can be verified by all other participants in the system. The point of all this? Well, in Adam Back's conception, it could be used to limit and prevent spam emails, as any spammer would need to provide a small proof-of-work calculation to send an email. This was not a real problem for ordinary people who wanted to send the odd email, but a potentially huge problem for malicious actors who wanted to send millions of emails at any one time. The proof-of-work mechanism is often credited to Moni Knorr and Cynthia Dwork to deter DDoS attacks and other abuses. It was not until 1999 when the term proof-of-work was coined by Marcus Jacobson and R.I. Joule. The concept was worked on for a couple of years, and it was in 2001 when Hashcash was formally proposed by Adam Back, whose 2001 paper synthesised much of the work done previously, and added in some of his own genius to the proposal. Back's conceptualisation of proof of work and the tokenization element to validate this work made the system far more substantial, and opened up the potential of a tokenised internet which would of course attract the attention of Satoshi Nakamoto. We saw in the episode on pre-Bitcoin internet currencies, there was a long process of development in the digital currency space amongst a group of hobbyists and professionals. The most important work was Adam Back's development of Hashcash. We didn't really touch too much on Hashcash, as it's not really a digital currency, and so I think it required its own episode. Hashcash was originally invented to limit spam emails and DDoS attacks using CPU proof-of-work. The system required one to use this proof-of-work system to expend some CPU energy 
to stamp an email with a proof-of-work token so the system can be almost positive it did not come from a spammer. Most spammers are unlikely to have the huge amount of CPU power required to send lots of spam emails to multiple people. The system was seen as advantageous over micropayments that could have been applied to sending emails. Sending large amounts of emails from legitimate sources would have hampered trade and largely been seen as stopping the free flow of information that was vital to keep the internet open. But the use of a small amount of CPU power would be a far more simpler solution. There were seen to be numerous small problems with Hashcash. It could cause non-spam emails to get stuck, and of course it was still possible for spam to get through. The other problem seen was technological advancement. After a few years of the system, the cost of using a proof-of-work mechanism would be diminished radically, allowing more opportunity for spammers to get around the system. Therefore, the system required the difficulty of the system to keep on increasing in line with Moore's law in order to avoid this. Other problems might be that lower income countries with inferior computing may not be able to keep up with these developments in computing. The universality of the internet could be threatened if the amount of CPU power increasing every two years placed a wall around the internet. From these early technical experiments and theoretical insights into cryptography, there came further developments. Computer scientist Hal Finney built on the idea with reusable proof-of-work. This reusable proof-of-work allowed for the value of proof-of-work tokens to be reused. The same token that was used to receive an email could be reused to send it. Using reusable proof-of-work tokens for email was seen to have advantages. People could reuse tokens from incoming emails in an outgoing one. This meant spammers would have no advantages since almost all of their email is outgoing. Reuse allows the cost of proof-of-work tokens to be much higher since most people won't have to generate them, making the system a far more effective anti-spam measure. Free email services could provide a small number of tokens for free, but if you needed any more, you could either pay for them or generate them with your CPU. In 2009, of course, the Bitcoin network went online. Satoshi referenced Bat's work in his white paper. Bitcoin is, of course, a proof-of-work digital currency that, like Finney's reusable proof-of-work, is based on the Hashcash proof-of-work. Bitcoin mining, or hashing, is simply the proof-of-work hashing to provide the evidence that the system works. In reward for this hashing, once every 10 minutes the system rewards these hashers, or miners, with a number of Bitcoin. At the moment, that number is 6.25. Yet, there was one problem with using the reusable proof-of-work mechanism. You didn't want anybody to spend any of them more than once. The double-spend problem with the famously unsolvable Byzantine general problem or how to communicate who spends what and by whom in a decentralized manner. Enter the timestamp server, or blockchain, which provides a decentralized peer-to-peer -peer protocol for the tracking of coins, rather than hardware trusted by the computing function used by reusable proof-of-work. Now, hopefully this episode has cleared up some of the background theory of proof-of-work, and also its application but I am going to read out the proof-of-work section 
from the Bitcoin white paper. Proof of work. To implement a distributed timestamp server on a peer-to-peer -peer basis, we will need to use a proof-of-work system similar to Adam Back's Hashcash rather than newspaper or Usenet posts. The proof-of-work involves scanning for a value that when hashed, such as with SHA256, the hash begins with a number of zero bits. The average work required is exponential in the number of zero bits required and can be verified by executing a single hash. For our timestamp network, we implement the proof of work by incrementing a nonce in the block until a value is found that gives the block's hash the required zero bits. Once the CPU effort has been expanded to make it satisfy the proof of work, the block cannot be changed without redoing the work. As later blocks are chained after it, the work to change the block would include redoing all the blocks after it. The proof-of-work also solves the problem of determining the representation in majority decision-making. If the majority were based on one IP address, one vote, it could be subverted by anyone able to allocate many IPs. Proof-of-work is essentially one CPU, one vote. The majority decision is represented by the longest chain, which has the greatest proof-of-work effort invested in it. If a majority of CPU power is controlled by honest nodes, the honest chain will grow the fastest and outpace any competing chains. To modify a past block, an attacker would have to redo the proof of work of the block and all blocks after it, and then catch up with and surpass the work of the honest nodes. We will show later that the probability of a slower attacker catching up diminishes exponentially as subsequent blocks are added. To compensate for increasing hardware speed and varying interest in running nodes over time, the proof-of-work difficulty is determined by a moving average targeting an average number of blocks per hour. If they're generated too fast, the difficulty increases. The societal shift from proof-of-authority and proof-of-stake to proof-of-work will be revolutionary. Monetary incentives are a global unconscious that impacts our very existence. It shapes humanity, society, and how it functions. Our current monetary order requires one to go through the various stakeholders and requires one to request permission in order to participate in many areas of life. This ranges from the small, like local governments issuing licenses, to the macro for things like banking licenses. You may think this can be good, you should want a doctor with a medical license, should you not? But if an unregistered doctor offers drugs like MDMA for PTSD, psilocybin mushrooms for anxiety, and LSD for depression gets better, and a standard doctor offers the standard SSRIs, which don't work, and the former gets struck off, that is a proof-of-stake system, not a proof-of-work system. So the move to a proof-of-work monetary order changes everything. There are now no barriers to entry to the Bitcoin network. The only thing required to participate is CPU power and electricity. This shift to proof-of-work is therefore an entirely new shift in the operations of mankind. It changes the very incentive structure of society. In a proof-of-work society, if you put the work in, you will get the results you deserve. 
Society will not be about who you know, but the result of the work you put in. How will this change society? Well, modern society is not healthy. Postmodernism is one of the most obvious results of this proof-of-stake society. As true talent becomes subverted by society, as reality itself is distorted by the bad incentive structures of money in this society. The same nation, for example, that can promote Constable and Turner can produce Damien Hirst and Tracy Emin. It is not because the latter produce great art, or that there is no great art being produced in Britain, but because modern art and how society incentivizes its production and promotion has, for too long, been about your stake in the society. The absolute victory of proof-of-work will mean the destruction of postmodernism. A proof-of-work society will no longer care about who you know, but what you can achieve by yourself. The results for this, on every element in society, especially those societies that are most nepotistic, will see new golden ages, as those truly talented who put the work in required, like Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000-hour thesis suggests, will now see the results on an exponential level. The process of hyper-Bitcoinization will not only result in new levels of wealth, but also new golden ages for society, as creatives get the rewards on an exponential level as their work is supported by the changing incentive structures. So that's all for this episode. In the next one, we will be looking at the complicated and vital process of Bitcoin mining, or as it really should be called, as this episode is hinted at, Bitcoin hashing. Thanks for listening. I'll see you soon.